The Say Something Podcast is brought to you by a momentwithmorris.com and blackblueprints.com. That's blackblueprints with a Z.com. I'm Jermaine Morris here with the one and only Mr. Barry Axius. Yes, sir. We are bringing you the Say Something Podcast. Say something, say something, say something. That's where we get together to talk about everything going on out here in the life and the world out here in these streets. In these cool, cool, cool streets, yeah. Coming at you, bringing episode number 72 your way. Booyah, 72 with a bullet. We coming at 100, 2.5 seconds. <laughs> right around the corner. You know, every day we like to jump off the show, we like to highlight somebody uh, that we have to give our own shine to. It's important that we tell our own stories, that we control our own narrative. Black and excellence. That we highlight the people who are important in, in our world, some that have gone and passed on, some who are contemporaries. And uh, this gentleman, he, he, he a contemporary and you can't get through. You look at the the impact that hip hop music has had. You look at the impact of movies and television, uh, how we always talk about uh, ownership and about how we need to be in control of what we do. Uh, this gentleman, uh, though, you may have mixed views about the content of some of the work he's done over the years. He definitely personifies ownership. And taking control of his career and of his life, originally born in the streets of uh, Los Angeles, to a uh, to a, a home that you wouldn't necessarily picture based upon the the product that he put out. And so, two parent household, grew up in in in, in L.A. His uh, father was a groundskeeper for UCLA. His mother was a hospital clerk. A uh, very bright kid, and that. Uh, he really tapped into when hip hop music was coming out in the early, uh, well, it was like Sugar Hill. You know, he was really something that he gravitated to. And he had a, a creative way of, of writing and he could verbally paint a picture even in high school. And that uh, he actually sold his first song at 16. And he used to get into writing rhymes in his typewriter class that he would type them up there and then he would go and perform stuff at school. Uh, though the, the music that he was talking about and promoting was really, you know, street based. Most people might have known him from his original group, CIA. And if you didn't know him from that group, you definitely knew him from the second one, which was N.W.A. And that he made a, a major mark writing rhymes for the late and great Mr. Uh, Eric Wright, a.k.a. Eazy-E. And he left the group because his money wasn't right. Looked at his contracts. Things didn't seem to line up accordingly. Wasn't getting paid what he was due. So he left and then got control of his own career and got control of what he wanted to put out. From then on, he went to release 10 solo albums, five group albums. Uh, he was involved, either acted, wrote, directed 39 films, and there two dozen TV shows, even two video games. Uh, recently started the three-on-three basketball tournament, the, the, the Big Three, which highlights former NBA players, which he already has network following, corporate sponsors. He's a firm believer in ownership through and through. And I think that when we talk about how we move forward as a people, uh, we have to be in control in the driver's seat, that we control our content, that we control what we put out, and that we don't just necessarily give everything away for an immediate dollar, that we keep control of what we're doing to benefit not only us, but the generations that follow us. Some folks know him out in his family. They call him O'Shea in the streets one time, Mr. Ice Cube. Yes, 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 yes. Clap it up, clap. I can't clap. Got too many. My hands is yeah. got too many. You got to show love to O'Shea Jackson. Ice Cube. One of the greatest albums in my young teenage life was America's Most Wanted. And one of my favorite songs on there, The End You Love to Hate. Yeah. That shit was, um, the production was done by uh, Bomb, Squad. Bomb Squad. And that was, those guys was producers of Public Enemy and all that. Yeah. It's a little bit probably too, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it might be this a little longer than two. Yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, you, I know you dealing with this Drake and all that, even though I like Drake. But Ice Cube was probably one of the best lyricists, not only in the West Coast, but in the East Coast at that particular time, especially for his first three albums. You got Death Certificate. You got, um, actually, you have the, um, the America's Most Wanted. Yeah. You have... Um, Lead- Killer Will. No, no, Killer Will. But that was a, that was a little small EP. We're well, talking about I'm saying death certificate, the predator, death certificate and the predator, Killer Will, oh, Killer Will, <laughs> Killer Will. One of my favorite songs still of all time is still Jacket for Beats. That in the hood, oh, 
forget about it. It had some of the hottest beats that were out in hip hop, and he just jacked them. He was spitting. You take your beat and roast you with man. Take give me that beat, beat fool. <laughs> it's a, a full time jack move. move. You little older, you remember? If you're a little younger, do some homework. Yeah. And still, people talk about Tupac's "Hit 'Em Up" or some of those the greatest diss record to this day, to my opinion, is "No Vaseline." Oh yeah, that was yeah. No Vaseline was one of the best. It was definitely one of the best. It was like it was like kind of like, um, and I, you know, people can argue with me. I'm a Drake fan, but it was almost kind of like that unexpected how back to back was to me. I'm just gonna say my opinion on that, but. No Vaseline. And then I think another thing that I thought was so dope is when he did the whole West Side Connection, right? Yeah. Bow down. And the only thing that I wish him and Tupac, because they were cool at the time. And I think before Pac died, Pac was kind of upset that, you know, uh, Ice Cube was doing the whole West Side because he's thinking he was taking it from Pac. You know, Pac probably took a little bit from Tupac. But if Tupac was on Bow Down, do you remember that song? Yeah. Oh, imagine Pac on it. Oh, and it during the East Coast, West Coast War. Oh, that would have been terrific. Yeah. And then you go into the early 90s when uh, he uh, was teaming up. He he wasn't full functioning following, but when he was working with the with the Nation of yeah, Islam. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of the stuff that he was speaking on, that a lot of the political, that was that social, economic. Album. Yeah. He was talking about real things going on. Summer and he, Vacation. And though he got his, he cut his teeth in acting playing Doughboy. If you look at the other stuff that he did, the Glass Shield, the Higher mm-hmm. Learning, like even the films he started choosing and the roles he was taking, you know, Ice Cube wasn't stupid. I mean, nah, a, a, as a teenager, he left to go to uh, uh, Phoenix Art Institute of uh, Study uh, Architectural Drafting. Mm-hmm. Like he got his diploma in a year, and mm-hmm. his goal was if rapping didn't pan out, he was going go into into architecture. Like into architectural drafting, so he was, you know, he was, he was, he was never associate unintelligence or ignorance to to Ice Cube. And after that, flipping the movies where he wrote his own scripts, produced, directed, put his own content out, full ownership and stuff. He was doing. He's doing his thing. Fifty fifty deals with studios. He doesn't need to rap no more. And just dropped the album, which I like. Man, I like that everything's no, corrupt. No, no, nobody <laughs> listens to Ice Cube. Ice Cube fans listen to Ice Cube. I, just, I, I listen to Cube. I like listen, the new I'm listening to old Cube, but I hear what you're saying. Everything's corrupt. Where yeah. it's it's talking about the, the the pill epidemic and talking about political stuff. It's not on that. You know, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's it's back to what it is. Yeah, it's, it's real solid. But I think we're looking at him is that we talk all the time about the need for ownership and the need for to to own. Yes, sir. And the the economics that we we talk about the black blueprint. And while we're talking about economics and, and the importance of how it affects us in our day-to-day home as well as the culture, society, and, and the world at large, we got a gentleman with us who was uh, well-versed in this department. we got a guest with us here on Say Something Podcast this week. Let's make a little noise on time as we introduce Brother Khalil Ferguson. Yeah, there's my little bro, man, your nephew. What's popping with you, brother? Peace, family. Peace. I see you. So we've been doing this thing a little bit, man. We've been getting you on these podcasts, man. A little bit, a little bit. You know what I'm saying? I told you, man. Get yourself out there, man. You got to speak your words of wisdom and true economic building to the black people. So tell sure. folks a little bit about yourself. No, all right. So my name is Cliff Ferguson, as you have already uh, heard. Uh, graduated my degrees in international relations and uh, economics from Texas State. Grew up in Richmond. Uh, grew up primarily Richtown. in the Nation of Islam in uh, Oakland. Uh, so that was dissolved. You know, I started going to, uh, to public school. So now I'm landed up at Sac State. You know, trying to progress my career and my life. So very nice, very nice. What you you got an idea like? So you went to school with international relations and you study in business and economics. Yeah. How do you want to apply that? Because we got a lot of folks that got degrees and ain't applying shit. Nah, man. Well, um, I tell my like I said, tell my friends all the time. I tell my friends all the time that I learned a lot about. Um, I guess kind of. Having the uh, influence from the nation, okay. um, everything I do, I, I kind of apply it to black, you know, black, black struggle, black progression, black oppression, you know, historic, uh, black history. And I tell my friends all the time that learning about international relations and, you know, specifically international uh, political economy um, and, and economic thought that comes through with that with regards to, like, you know, the current economic thought. Um, I always try to find it to apply that to black people, whether that be how capitalism has shifted, you know, from slavery times to, you know, pre-slavery to how so shifted to now and like how that still keeps white people oppressed and stuff like that. So 
I wouldn't say there's a plan for its application right now. It's really learning about how capitalism has kept us oppressed and how we need to, you know, essentially get out of this capitalist this capitalistic system. Um, you can essentially liberate ourselves. So would you say that something that you've seen is an issue of getting out of capitalism or how to better play the game? Well, I mean, of course, that's uh, that's kind of comes with the progression as well. So it started out with um, how to get how to get out of the system. Okay. You know, like I said, my role always reference um, the miseducation of the Negro by Carter G. Woodson. You know, and that in that he says that we need to kind of engage in capitalism, stop competing amongst each other and start competing with each other um, in the market. Okay. So like, you know, then I kind of reference Black Wall Street. You're like, why was Black Wall Street so successful? Didn't see, you know, it had everything you need for a community. It had businesses that complemented each other. It didn't, they didn't like take away business from each other. But yeah. you, know, you had a farm. I had a grocery store. You had a restaurant. We all going to eat because, I'm, you know, the farmer's going to essentially export to the uh, to the grocery store and the restaurants need food from the grocery store. Or you can go straight from the farm. However you want to do it, they have businesses that complement each other. Um, and that's kind of how you need to engage in the capitalist society. Learning about socialism, communism, you know, capitalism and these, you know, these, these, uh, these classes, we understand that, I got the understanding that socialism, communism isn't the way to go because, you know, we place the hand, we place power in the hands over our lives, largely in the hands of a racist government. Okay. Um, so if we were, if we were to switch to communism, you know, revolt this United States government who has proven to be racist and proven to be oppressive of black folks, place more power in their hands with regards to the modes of production, which are the, you know, who gives who gives us jobs, who controls how much we make, who controls our income, and all of that. Um, we're placing that in the government that already does not like us. Um, on top of that, if we were to switch to a socialist society, we learn that private property is allowed within these so these uh, socialist uh, socialist and communist societies. They allow you to have, let's say, a small businesses to make some money. Not, yeah. a lot, not as long as you're making too much money. Um, you can still own a home. You can have personal property. So in that case, let's look at black people right now. We want to switch to a socialist and communist society, but yet we don't own homes. We rent. Yeah. We don't really own anything. So if we switch to a communist and socialist society without owning homes, now we're relying on the government to provide housing for us. If you look between the 30s and the 70s with regards to, let's say, Keynesian, Keynesian economic thought, which is really the government controlling the economy, that we'll see that. Let's look at public housing. Public housing was, you know, uh, and not even, not even just public housing, but also like, um, we talk. We like to reference redlining. Okay. Um, and I read a book over the summer called The Color of Law. How it kind of just states that yes, we know the banks did package redlining, but let's focus on how the government, the federal government, unconstitutionally supported that. Mm. Um, it was the and first still to this day. Still to this day. So if you like, if <laughs> and you, for folks that don't know what redlining is, so redlining is just uh, as banks they will redline properties um, on a map to show where they will not grant mortgages to black folks. Essentially. Okay. Um, so if you look at, you know, they broke down that and literally in the first chapter, he uh, first two chapters, he goes over how the FHA uh, underwriting manual explicitly said they will not, um, not didn't say subsidize, but they will not um, grant mortgages or secure mortgage loans to Negroes. Yeah, it still says that now. For and anybody who thinks that that's old, if you if you took a real estate class in the last 12 months to get your real estate license, it's in it's still in, exactly. in the paperwork. Well, I mean, they said that, um, you know, a lot of, you know. Black homeowners are getting duped right now as we yeah, speak. They're, they're being undervalued. Undervalued, like that's just a report just came out, like recently this uh, last month or um, earlier this month. So, if you look at how the state has uh, or the government has kind of controlled housing, you've already shown that the government has already been racist and oppressive, oppressive against black ownership with regards to housing or even public housing. When World War One veterans came back from the depression trying to get public housing they specifically made and converted buildings into homes for specifically for them yeah. for them however they gave priority to white um white veterans and even when they had vacancy specifically they have the book even starts off in richmond that's why I, kind of why i gravitate towards the book it starts off in richmond and the idea of between north and south richmond and central richmond being you know that segregation line called the tracks and nowadays the tracks is you know the separation between south richmond and central richmond between you know essentially the war you live on the wrong side of the tracks exactly um but how like they specifically how black veterans would come back and they would have public housing that would be open, but yet they would still not uh, accept black veterans. That lets North Richmond becoming a slum, mm. essentially. And now you see North Richmond and unincorporated North Richmond uh, is still a slum, essentially, and still is one of the most um, poverty stricken parts of Richmond. So it's like how that kind of transcends from like histor history. So that's why I like to, you know, I tell people I like to focus on economic history and economic struggle for uh, black people and our oppression of the state 
uh, via economics and politics. Um, and I've learned a lot of that through international relations. So as I keep learning and everything, we, you know, we see our struggle, we see what we've tried to do and how it has not worked. Um, but something that's always told to me, like even I went to run for political office, and you know that was like that was my idea at one point to how we got out of the struggle. Was like, no, we need to get in this this power get structure within the system and, and, and work, work within. It. Yeah, you know, doing my studies, like we've had that, we've had the influx of black politicians throughout Chicago, New York, through all over the United States who haven't been able to affect change. And why is that? Because it's capitalist structure where money rules politics, and mm-hmm. what we don't have as a community is money. Hold on a second, boys and girls. Money rules politics. Like we gotta keep that in mind. But let's 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 keep yeah. keep, keep going. So so two parts. Number yeah. one, how yeah. old are you? Twenty three. And I think that that's an important part to throw out first is because uh, there's a lot of narratives that our young brothers and sisters are not plugged in, and and that that it's good that somebody of your age is already. Uh, this is a conversation I would have with a forty three or fifty three year old. You know, and the fact that twenty three, you're already this kind of set and, and this learned in, in these particular fields. So now somebody being as young as you are, because you're not in the position to where somebody who's 45, who, who's come to this information and learns all this, but is already bogged down with a mortgage, a, a wife, three kids. And even though they like to make, make things happen, they personally don't feel like they're in a position. They're like, man, I just got to keep the lights on. Mm-hmm. Junior needs braces. You know, I, I you know, I, I see this stuff, but, you know, what can I do out of my position? So somebody in your position, like, how would you like to I know we talk about how would you like to apply this stuff? But where do you see you said you want to run? You originally wanted to run for office. Mm-hmm. Not so much now. Where do you see this going? You looking to teach? You looking to. Well, the campaign for office will still be on the table. What position um, was it? At least for Sacramento. So me being settled here in Sacramento for about five and a half years, six years going on. Um, I would definitely like to at least start with city council and augment that, you know, throughout California. Um, however, I don't plan to get high with, you know, within the power structure because there's really not much you do. And once at least, you know, I say running for either either party, you have to give away some of your, you know, your liberties. Let's, well, why not create our own party? Exactly. Create, create our own party. But then in that in that sense, you know, you already got, you know, we spoke about earlier, yeah. the, you know, the fragmentation of the black community, you know, whether that be politically or, you know, ide- ideologically. Okay. Um, you may not have some, you know. Let's say you can use, for example, the people who oppose the Nation of Islam right now. Nation of Islam is one of the, you know, most, I guess, prosperous black political parties, if you want to say. Yeah. And there's still opposition within our own community against them. So it was like, you know, what can and we you really- saw that wave coming when they wanted um, the women in a women march, how they wanted Farrakhan. to denounce Farrakhan. Exactly. You can kind of see that wave happening still. Exactly. That didn't happen. But it's like <laughs> to that to that uh, to that uh, extent, it's like, you know. What will we unify on at this point? You know, I think after after the crack epidemic, you see this like this influx of black people going up on their own ideology um, yeah. with how they think they should, you know, at least survive in this power structure. You know, we still have the liberationists, you know, who won't have as much uh, influence now because the liberation party is over. You know, they killed or imprisoned everyone. Mm-hmm. You know, you got still Assadas in in, uh, in Cuba. Yeah. <laughs> Hi. So I'm going to stay there. And they, and they still want her. And they still want With her. Tupac. Hey, and they still want her head. So it's, um, so it's like, what can we do to unify um, black ideologic and black, you know, at least mindset to get on one accord to actually get what we want? Because right now we're too fragmented within our own community. OK, because we talk all the time when we do these financial empowerment summits, teaching the young people the significance of a strong economic base. They say it all the time. And uh, without an economic base and a capitalist society, you, your your voice is irrelevant. Uh, all the the protesting, the talking, all that stuff doesn't carry over into policy change because policies were set by dollars. You know, people lobbyists came in. People said, "I'm putting my money in this direction to make this happen." Mm-hmm. Uh, your feelings need to trump their dollars. Yeah. So if you if if they put up fifty thousand dollars to make this happen, your tears better equal fifty one thousand dollars. <laughs> You better come up with 60 grand worth of tears. You better come up with 70 grand worth of frustration. You better come with 80 grand worth of anger. Like, because if you're just coming with your feelings, no, no policy just gets changed. And I think sometimes we look at social things and don't see how all roads lead to money. You know, we, we look at things as our education system, dealing with law enforcement, the judicial system, uh, housing, businesses, like where you can get permits to build stuff, how you can keep uh, how certain uh, groups don't have a police presence in their neighborhood because they don't want them. Mm-hmm. 
because they've got enough money to say, leave us alone. Mm-hmm. Other ones have extensive ones the way that and they want certain things done. If, if somebody's dog walks across my yard, I want them swooped up because they pay a certain amount of money and, and, and make that stuff happen. Mm-hmm. So I, I think for a lot of us, we're pretty aware. Like, I, I think that we, we've come to see that. Uh, well, we know we need to come together. We know we need to have businesses. Like in theory, uh, like if you if you approach somebody and say, "How how are we supposed to move forward?" But, well, we need to come together. Well, of course we know we yeah, need, we to, need come to come together. together. But at like, the end of the day, coming together in what though? That's what I'm saying. So yeah. if you if you ask any John Q, whomever on the street, most would say, "Yeah, we need to have businesses. Yeah, we need to own our own. Yeah, we need to do all that." Okay, if everybody knows that, then what are in your opinion? Are, are there any things that you've you know, what you've come to learn are your ideas because you're young. And so, you know, I think the fresh minds, you know, a fresh set of eyes looking at something may come up with, you know, may see something a little bit differently. You know, when you're staring at something, room full of people staring at the same picture, you're missing it. Fresh set of eyes comes in off. Oh, OK, that's it. Anything that you've seen? There's uh, there's a few things with regards to that. Um, a lot of people are talkers. Okay. Um, I see that on campus, you know, on campus right now myself. You know, there's a few of us who are actually leading the group, you know. But then it's like, what do we do when we're gone? Who's going to take over? That's one. Um, the lack of trust in the community. You know, um, we'll say support black businesses, support black businesses. Um, then you'd be like, well, I don't know if he's doing it, trying to take my money and, you know, trying to exploit me. You know, they're like, well, that's the animosity between that. And that's, there's a few things, you know, it's just a lack of trust that we have in, in the community um, between each other. Therefore, we don't want to, we get jealous. You know, that jealousy takes over. You see somebody, um, prospering in their business and it kind of goes back to what you know Carter G. Woodson said in Miseducation of the Negro um, you see that brother prospering over there with, with his restaurant and you're like oh I'm gonna get in that that's lucrative oh yeah let me set up a, a restaurant right next to him you know it's kind of that jealousy that takes over it consumes us within you know, our own communities you know we don't act we don't think community wise we all think individual wise like okay I'm gonna get out the hood I'm gonna I'm gonna prosper I may get back to the hood but I'm not really gonna help him come out so yeah. it's like we need to eat we need to eat as a community and that's how Black Wall Street, essentially, you know, the thought process of that. Of that. Um, we, we ate as a community. If you're going to eat as a, as a farm, I'm going to eat as a grocery store, at a restaurant, I'm going to eat, the kids going to eat, we're going to have a bank. And what largely is, you know, is, 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 is kind of essential, not only are businesses essential to our growth, but what we really need is access to capital. And where does that come from? That comes from banks that will give us that capital. Um, and banks ain't fucking with us. There is well, there's one black bank, one United Bank, one United down in, in LA. In I think it's the closest branch. Is yeah. the closest one, and um, I've just like been doing research on what they've done, what they with regards to lending. Yeah. Um, how the that bank has supported black businesses has been tremendous. Um, and the thing is, that's that's a that's a hard that's a hard industry to get into. Um, there have been plenty of black businesses. There was really only one that survived the Great Depression. Yeah. And that one was taken over by white influence. Essentially, they got white shareholders to get into the. Uh, into the uh, shareholders meeting, essentially that that whole thing just changed changed brand and it was taken over by white folks essentially. Yeah, and something for people to get their brain around too. In the United States, you take b- banks, credit unions, all that stuff together. There's roughly only about twenty black-owned banks and credit unions in the entire United States. Like. It, 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 it's astounding. You think about if you live in your area, there's a Bank of America on the corner, there's a Wells Fargo around the corner from there, there's a Chase down the street, there's a U.S. bank, there's whatever. There is roughly about 20 some odd banks and credit unions owned by black people throughout the entire 50 states. Well, I mean, you look at a situation, what um, Killer Mike did, right? Yeah. During the um, whole election piece, he was going back and forth talking about you know, black folks coming out and spending their taking out their money um, from the white banks and giving it to um, the black banks. That same bank we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Now, when you look at that, the scenario is if I'm living here in Sacramento, it's going to be kind of hard for me to you know trace down my money in L.A., even though we can do online banking and things of that nature. And it's almost kind of um, moving towards that a lot. You still want to have access to be able to say, I want to drive down the street to go to my bank. I don't want to have to fly out to L.A. or, you know, drive down to L.A. That's kind of like the thing. I still want to be able to have access to my money. Sometimes I don't want to do the bank transfer. I just want to walk the money in. I want to go ahead yeah. and talk to the to the clerk and, and kind of give, um you know, that conversation and learn who my bank people are. I think that the ideas that we all have at this table, they are minute level thinking because we don't really roll in that thought process. We don't really see the significance of actually having our own banks. We don't look at the significance of how this would um, set us up for a, a, a higher win 
compared to just, okay, well, we have one in L.A. and that's okay. And to me, that's dangerous. Going back into when you were talking about um, black businesses, um, it was funny. uh, One of the queens uh, with black blueprints was talking about how, you know, we don't patronize black businesses after a black business may do uh, one thing wrong, might not be open, make a mistake, whatever. It's one and done. Yeah. Yeah. But in, in, in reality, everyone talks about, well, black businesses have horrible customer services. Well, let me correct you. What business doesn't? You know what I'm saying? I, I go to the Asian um, uh, spot to go get my, my feet and nails done. Hold up. It's like, yo, I don't even know what you're saying to me. First of all, I, the language barrier is right there. And then when I go into the, um, the, the hair shops that they have, I'm being chased down every aisle because they think I'm going to steal. So how is that good customer service? If I walk into a, a, a Latino restaurant, I'm, I'm looked at kind of like, why are you here? You understand what I'm saying? And really, I've had some of the most rudest waitress and waiters at white restaurants. So this idea that black people give the worst customer service is, again, us normalizing what has been preached to us over and over again. Mm-hmm. So it, it frustrates me when you could have a black business that might have burned the rice. Right. But you have a Chinese restaurant that has been um, in, in penalty with what's that? What's that board? Uh Is the FDA the Better Business Bureau? No, the other the, one, the public public. Public health safety, yeah, public health safety, right? They get penalized. They get penalized. The health department, they get shut down, and they get put back up two weeks. And Negroes is right there, right? Galvanizing, you know, they're they're patronizing, and you know, hey, the the uh, chicken wings that taste like rat, it sounds good to me. You know what I mean? We have to get out of this idea that because we make mistakes, because we allow others to be in our thought process that supporting and building black is this idea that's so radical when in reality it's not radical it's just a way of survival and i think that because black people have now in this day and age have had too many choices before we built black wall street because there was no choice Negro, you could be the Dr. Negro and want to get into that lily white world. But the reality is that's not going to be you. You could be the ball player and have just scored 25, 10 rebounds, 10 assists. But that average old little white kid that was cheering you on say, oh, my God, uh, Malcolm, Malcolm can now tap you on the shoulder like, you know, you're not supposed to sit there and you would have to get out your seat and go where you're supposed to be seated. We don't have. That kind of urgency because we're comfortable in being able to get the crumbs. And for those who have stole a slice of the pie, they have ran away from these same communities that um, they've infested with drugs and, 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 and guns and poverty to where Negroes really believe that living in the best areas are outside of our own community instead of thinking, hmm, I should invest in these communities and build it out and gentrify it ourselves Mm -hmm. and then get frustrated when we're gentrified. Right. I saw this funny video of this, uh, White girl doing the Harlem Shake, yeah, and the Marcy and, and the and Marcy and Housing Projects, and, and it was just kind of like in Bed Stuy, like in Brooklyn, well, in the middle of the day, like in the middle, and she was <laughs> geeking with some Tim's on. And it, for those, the video was probably funny, but what it does, it speaks to a a a, 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 a bigger um, audience and an idea and how we have normalized behavior of allowing white folks or any folks because it's not necessarily white folks because the Asians own the market for hair and nails. And when, if you look at that and you can calculate that we go spend religiously billions. probably billions of dollars to that those two industries. When the Negro starts losing that um, that 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 art of cutting hair, and now you're gonna have Pedro or or um, Javier. And the Mexicans are getting on it. Listen, they and the Asians as well. They tighten listen, it up. They I even had an Asian cut my hair a few times as well because my barber was tripping. Once they start getting that science of how to do it, just like they did hip hop. 
Because remember back in the day, hip-hop, us believing that we would entertain, as you think about Ice Cube, like Ice Cube is one of the greatest rappers that we don't even talk about, right? We talk about Eminem before uh, we yeah. talk about Ice Cube. We never thought in our day that we would be bumping and knocking our heads to white boys. We got Vanilla Ice, we had Third Base, we had BC Boys, we let y'all live, and now y'all expire, go. Now, if you look at the industry, it's controlled, G-E-Z, and it is... Post Malone. And they're the more... Lyricist compared to some of our other artists in this newer age. So to say that it's not possible, I'm watching something that I grew up on hip hop be turned into like a not only a soap opera but a a, a a big clown show with a whole bunch of white rappers that are emulating us to the T. Mm-hmm. So for me to sit there and say that there ain't going to be a bunch of Asians and Mexicans that are going to be cutting um, a bunch of black people's hair and taking over that industry is for me to sit there and say, yo, I, I, I'm, I'm stupid because in the effect, it can happen. Well, that was a big thing in Ice Cube, the barbershop movies. He had the one white barber and that nobody would let him cut their hair. Like he was just, it was, and then at the very end, one dude finally gave him a break and it was clean. And then the entire sequel, he was the man. Yeah. Like he had his own signature little little imprint he would put in their head and everybody was waiting hours to get their hair cut by the one white barber because he figured it out how to do it. And they were used to, the brothers in the shop used to hate on him. But even that, even in that content of allowing that to be, um, something that he overcomes right it almost sets the precedence of what is to come that's what right? i'm saying you know what i mean that yeah. that that whole idea Ooh, even in even, i was just seeing another show with cedric the entertainer it was like black guys were all sitting around getting the relationship advice from the white boy yeah that's the reverse gentrification they're trying to make fun of i don't know if you've seen it yet it's a it's a, a black neighborhood an affluent black neighborhood that the first white family moves in on the block. (laughs) And so they try to take a comical approach to addressing gentrification. But what that does is comedy about that shit. But what it does is it normalizes. Exactly. And the stuff that we would sit there and get upset about and the stuff that the reason why the jokes hit is because you know what it is. You know, and when you if you'd have reversed it and said the problems of, you know, if it was if you took it just reality, you'd be like, oh, I, this is this is messed up. But when you reverse it and it, it's the white family and it's the jokes and he's kind of doing the stuff that, that's been uh, happening in that neighborhood, mm-hmm. they're they're softening you for gentrification. Yeah. Let's go, let me ju- let me go ahead and get you familiar with it. Yeah. Let me let me go ahead and put it in your household at prime time. We can laugh at it. Mm-hmm. So when we start to look out the window and we see that we You're can, not afraid of it. It doesn't offend you. No. But it should offend you and you should be afraid of it. And you should look at every neighborhood and, and travel to all the places that were predominantly black. We talk about Chocolate City. You don't even know uh, if it is Chocolate City anymore. You can't even call it Chocolate City anymore in D.C. Because we have allowed ourselves to be so comfortable with, um, one, how white people do the business, two, white acceptance, and three, not having the ability to cultivate our own and accept our culture and be able to unify in a way to where it's we don't got to love everything about each other, but we know it got to be about the build. And when we separate ideology from build, like, yo, you're a Christian. I'm a Catholic. Are we building? Yes. Building what? Black? Let's go. <laughs> Once you get off that table, how we voting? We voting this way. Let's go. And then how is that motherfucker talking shit? I don't know, but we about to check his ass in a second. It's like a nigga will sit there and take a bag and sell himself out, sell his community out. We don't even allow ourselves to even ideally think about Black Wall Street because most of us are too afraid to learn about Black Wall Street. We are so busy continuing to praise Martin Luther King Jr. instead of studying Marcus Garvey. And these are the kind of things in principle that affects us terminally. And when these things start coming down the pipe, when you start having niggas be being involved in Trumpism and being puppets for for Trump because they're trying to make it seem as well. Trump is going to do this for black people. Trump is only going to do one thing for one person. That's Trump and his organization. That's Trump and his dynasty. Trump is for Trump. Trump is not for black people. The only thing Trump has done has allowed some black people to see how real it can get. But I don't think it's gotten real enough for Negroes. Yeah. And first off, for that Trump stuff, you need nine figures to 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 get in the door <laughs> and you need 10 to get a seat. <laughs> so for, for a lot of us out there who are like, man, he's going to do this for this. It's a nine figure cover charge 
before you can even be invited to the party. But you need to have 10 if you want to sit down and, and, and actually talk about something. Yeah. So that ain't us. Nah, we ain't. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, but you know, and the thing about it, but the cold part about it, though, it is us when it's something that we want. Because Negroes this past weekend ran, and that's really to be, I should say, that should be the silly Negroes, because all you dumbass Negroes that ran over to, to, to the stores and, and stomped each other and, 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 and try to kick each other and punch each other and fought each other and stuck up each other just to get the Jordans, like, you know, to get the Jordans that, the, what is the Concord, right? Yeah. That just, the black and white ones that have come out um, every times. other every other <laughs> or every four or five years to see the sense of urgency yeah. to see that urgency to see that demand to see that I want it to watch Negro stand in line for hours this is 2018 yeah. this is still the most uh, 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 turbulent time for black people in our era and niggles are still waiting to go pick up some Jordans. And to me, that shows the lack of where we are. You guys are believing that niggles are having the conversation, but are we really having a conversation? I don't really believe well, that. Sticking with that too, and you can jump on in here too, brothers. That that that's when you fall for the okie doke again. Because what happened is that there was a, a group of people who realized that we go out in droves and will will sacrifice the rent to get these Jordans when they come out. So then that's when. The, another group realized, okay, so let's schedule this stuff out, and they created and these vintage uh, spots. They created the the niche pop ups for this and that. Like they took something that we were doing and created a business, and it wasn't us. Like we we repeatedly will have an idea, and we don't invest in us. We don't see the value in us. Everybody else sees the value of black people. It's why when you come from another country and you're trying to get yourself established, I remember talking to Middle Eastern brothers some years back. They tell you, go find black neighborhoods because most of the buildings you can get into, uh, most of the property value is low. Like the cost of the getting is low. Uh, Whatever it is that that, that needs to be supplied for the community, they're more likely than not going to supply it for themselves. So you come on over, you're like, why are all these Middle Eastern people here? Why are all these Indian people here? Why are they all this? Because the blueprint is there. They're like, look, go to black people and, and set up shop with what they need because they're not going to do it for themselves. And the one thing about it, Brother Marcel, um, he said, you know, we don't support each other. And and I think that that is such a beat up like theory and idea. Mm-hmm. Support, support. I just don't understand the logic of not wanting to support somebody that looks like you, right? So you know what I'm saying, King? Well, yeah, yeah. So I mean, I've kind of made a list and things you know we touched on. We talked about essentially, you know, I simplified it. You know, self hate. Um, <laughs> you breaking it down. Huh? So, so so wait, hold on a second. So this is why we don't support. Yes. So just the four things that we you know you we just touched on right here, kind of in the list. So we have um, why we don't support black businesses. Um, you know how others study black people. You know, and then MO. You touched on MOK briefly. We want to touch on that, and then we touched touched on Nike. That's pretty funny as well because I just actually uh, have you, my view on that recently. What you got the shoes? Uh, no, I don't. So um, why, what's your view? So one well, thing is, so you know, you know, earlier, so when Nike dropped the Kaepernick, the Kaepernick ad, oh, you that, know, that I, was, I saw, I saw, I saw yeah. for what is what it was worth, and it yeah. was just, you know, Nike profiting off social justice action, yeah. um, you know, and what how we see it in the you know, in economic in economic terms, you know, international political economy terms, that's that's what's called you know a economic neoliberalism, and that just means the spreading of ideals and the integration of cultural ideals and economies within the globe. Um, so with regards to what Nike does, you know, we all know Nike is, you know, a very for-profit capitalist institution. They yes. use cheap sweatshops in Vietnam, South Korea, and everything to make profit. Got a nine-year-old stitching your Jordans for about maybe. Yeah, hey, well, hold on a second. Less, 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 listen, less y'all, listen, day. y'all, don't make me too feel too bad. I got a lot of Nike shit. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> but, and I got stock. But, so but I mean, but 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 what what largely in that in that turn, what I saw that was like we know. You know, black people spend a trillion dollars a year. Black people largely, you know, are are consumer based. Yes. Nike, you know, black people make up one of the largest um, consumers of Nike shoes, especially. Um, so with regards to that, Nike doing that Kaepernick ads, like, hey, we're going to appeal to their emotional rhetoric. You know, black people are largely reactionary and emotional. On top of that, they're going to support us all the way. We can lose whatever conservatives we had, which is what they did. And they'll come back. And and they'll they'll come back. But essentially, our 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 revenue is going to increase for the quarter and for the year, and yeah. our stock price is going to jump up. What happened? I saw people on my Facebook, and you know, I still have a strife about this. First thing, oh, one of the old heads from Richmond said, "Look, buy buy stock in Nike right now." <laughs> yeah. 
I'm like, you're falling for the trap. That's exactly what you put. You're dumping your money in a Nike. And his counter argument was that we're taking ownership. I'm like, you're taking ownership of a white organization, let alone you don't have the funds to sit at the shareholders meeting. So if you're taking ownership, you're not really taking much because you don't have the millions of dollars to be at that shareholders yeah. meeting to actually give direction. His kind of response to that was that you're you're young minded. You don't know what we have pulled together as a community. I'm like, if you pull together enough money to sit at the shareholders meeting as a representative, put that money into the black community and start, you know, um, helping want some of these black businesses prosper. If you're a exactly. person, there's plenty of economic prosperity you could do with, you know, millions of dollars, or whatever. So I just want to touch on that with regards to Nike and their. Um, actually, I actually was reading an article today in one of my uh, books for a class. That kind of touched on Nike and how they're how they've appealed to the black community. Essentially, it said um, part of the appeal of Nike. This is in the 80s and 90s. Part of the appeal of Nike's advertising is its success in tapping and communicating a consistent set of values that many people in the 70s and 80s. I'm sorry, identified it identified with hipness, uh, individualism, narcissism, self improvement, gender equality, racial equality, competitive, and health. And this is about the marketing strategy that Nike did in uh, the 70s and the 80s. Subsequently, it also says, but there has also been several allegations made that by targeting inner city youth, youth in advertising and marketing campaigns, Nike has profited substantially from sales directly related to drug and gang money. Showing little concern for the social and financial stability of the predominantly black poor communities where sales accounts for 20% of the total athletic footwear market. The relationship between athletic footwear industry and drug money has become increasingly evident by the alarming rates of robberies and killings over expensive sports shoes. Mm. Some store owners claim that Nike is not only aware that drug money contributes heavily to its sales, but that Nike represents, I'm sorry, Nike representatives adamantly encourage distributors in inner cities to specifically target and cater to this market. Now, let me just say one piece before I know Jermaine, you was about to jump in. That is a powerful um, article right there. But we also got to touch in on how Nike, you know, the police in Chicago use Nike shoes as um, a part of the a, a Nike bait uh, a program, right? Mm-hmm. Where they put um, it in trucks, and you know what? Do you you kids see that boxes of Nike shoes? What you think you're gonna do? Yeah, you know what I mean? Recognize the value in those areas. They're gonna go ahead and go take it. But while we were all celebrating, you know, uh, peace, Teddy. Uh, when we were all celebrating Nike for what they allegedly did to to bo- boost up the social um, justice morale, I don't think any of my social social justice people that are on the streets working every day we ain't seen their one check. Right. So what they still kind of continue to do, not only were they funding um, some of the Republicans that was running in for the last um, election. Oh, yeah. Right. And, and the election before that. But they allowed Chicago police to bait the same black kids, the same black kids that they're saying buy our shoes. The same black kids. You did not hear now one Nike rep say, hey, that's not us. We don't know what happened. Blah, say, blah. Nike was mute. When you see that, when Negroes run around, again, reactionary attitude, reactionary moments, we run. I saw so many stupid Negroes running around getting Nike, buying Nike. And I'm like, yo, I'm already a Nike wearer, so I didn't have to go cop cop. But people jointly were throwing out Nike as if it was the savior of the black community. And the Nike has not given not one dollar to the black community to raise up anything or build nothing. Mm -hmm. So the standard of what we ask ourselves for help or the standards of what we take as far as a victory are those minute things, the symbolic things, the symbolic idea of, wow, Nike stood up for Colin Kaepernick while Colin Kaepernick has his two million dollar deal and uh, Nike lasts all the way to the bank and black people continue to have the same damn issues. Yeah, because I think that goes to what we've been saying is that. Everybody recognizes the value of black people, but black people. Yeah. If we're sitting at a board meeting and we're going to say, well, what's our target audit? Where, where do we get our numbers from? OK, so what can we do to tap into this? It's why they stood behind Serena, because mm-hmm. they know Serena's value. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we st- we'll get behind Kaepernick. We know and we, we'll galvanize this. We'll make all our money and then we'll keep it pushing. And I think what we get hung up on sometimes is we think that that there's loyalty in the game. When it comes to to business and capitalism, I want to say one thing before we switch gears that just leads me to say again. Ignorant black people are a white man's wet dream. 
It's because the ignorance of us by not valuing what you said is our value. The we not holding our most precious things and say, hey, we're not going to sell this out short. We know the value. Sometimes our value is priceless. So you can't name a price by just selling it out for crumbs. It leads us to be in these positions, in these awkward positions that so many of not only our athletes, our normal people and our entertainers become and get in. Well, that's what I mean. Well, we sit there and think that because. Oh, well, well, Nike supported uh, Kaepernick in this. Oh, Nike must be for black people. Mike, Nike must be for police reform. Nike must be for Democrats. Nike must be for. No. Black it's a, empowerment. It's a move to protect your bottom line. Mm-hmm. That's it. And so when you're playing the capitalism game, that's what it's about. Why do why does Nike support Republicans? The same reason why they support Democrats for a move that's going to protect their bottom line. Why do they get behind this person as opposed to behind that person? Because it's a move to protect their bottom line. It's about money is, is what makes the machine move. If you have it, you can play the game. If you don't, you're just going to have to scoreboard watch and hope that, you know, it, it works out in how you think it should play out. Because in this society where if you do not have your economic base, if you do not have your chips together, If you don't have skin in the game, like if you are not a a willing participant in this capitalist machine, you are going to sit on the sidelines and fall victim to however it plays out. That's why these groups have been making so much headway, leaps and bounds past us, where we used to be in a position to where when decisions were made socially, politically, whatever, black people had to be taken into consideration. Like, what are we going to do about these Negroes in some way, shape or form? Yeah. And the fact of the matter is, is now it's no, we, we have to cater to an, an Asian market. We have to worry about our, our Middle Eastern presence. We have to worry about our Latino population. We have to address our LBGTQ uh, population because they've got skin in the game. They've got chips on the table. They've got money moving the machine. When they need policy done, when they need stuff addressed, when they need people lifted up, when they need people taken out. They've got money in the game that they can make that happen. And we get too hung up on maybe we make money, but we don't have money in the game. Maybe we're we have good ideas, but we don't have chips on the table. Uh, talking about where these machines move is uh, we have one of our guys, you know, when I mean one of our guys, one of our representatives has been the face of everything for the last five years. Yeah, my guy. I'm talking about the team. What he team? black. What he team? black. So, so he was on all play. He wasn't playing for the I black get that. team. But what I'm saying is, is that and a representative. That's the problem. We always be thinking everybody is for the team. No, and no, no, not no, no, for no. The team. Not for the team, from the team. And so when we get hung up, when we see a black person in certain circles and we see a black person in certain uh, environments, uh, making certain moves, making certain money. The symbolic thing you're talking about is that we are sitting there saying, OK, we're doing something. And uh, Kevin Hart had to learn. Oh boy! That because the learn. LBGT community got chips on the table, oh, they got skin in the game. They are the most powerfulest group beside the Jews. And all his movies, all his stand-up, the TV shows, the commercials, the 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 the, the, the animated movies, the the Instagram famous, all that stuff didn't make a difference because Kevin Hart was black, and black people don't have enough skin in the game. When he they pulled up those tweets from. Uh, 2009, 2008, 2009, where he was referencing, talking to his friends back and forth on Twitter, but used uh, what they deemed as homophobic slurs, which he addressed some years back. But because he was slated to host the Oscars, all that stuff resurfaced Mm -hmm. and they let him know. Nah, I don't care how many times you apologize previously. We're going to make you apologize again. Well, here's the thing. (laughs) Let's 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 be very clear. Why are we at the Oscars in the first place? Like didn't we, we over that? No, 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 no. Didn't I'm we? Saying, like, no, I'm, I'm saying, <laughs> didn't we sit there and proclaim Oscars so white, Oscars are done, moving on, and 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 kind of now elevating a different black space. Viola Davis. The, 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 we we did all square with the house. Okay, but why Davis. do we keep on going back? <laughs> us that, as as that exactly that white acceptance. Why do we keep going out to a burning house? And then two, the simple fact that you have these tweets. And it's not knocking when we're, we're not saying that the behavior is being condoned. But one, he's a comedian Two, let's be very clear and honest. Many uh, a, a person use those certain slurs that are now 
in a sense of not saying it to verbally abuse people, but just was saying it, just talking shit. It was just kind of like some things that you said. And I know people might not understand that breakdown because we have become so ultra sensitive. But if that's 10 years ago, I have to look at what happened with Kevin Hart and say, well, who did he piss them off? Who did he piss off? Because when you look at the Indian and um, cowboy disaster, when they were like, oh, why are you having an Indian and cowboy sleepover? And he didn't apologize. They got on him about that. I think that triggered something. And then here comes the Oscar. He pisses somebody off enough. They're going to go ahead because we have a very um, sensitive kind of world that we live in where everybody will take what you've done 20 years ago and 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 put you on, hang you on the cross literally and say, well, this shows who you are as your character. They throw it out there. And now here you have Kevin Hart having to fight for his life. But in the same sense, Kevin Hart now has to learn from the Bill Cosby's, from the Tiger Woods. What happens when you go against the grain and what happens when you go against a powerful entity like the LGBTQ? They they are powerful. They're they're bigger than w what we could ever imagine. And I and I sometimes think that they don't look at black gay people as equal. They just look at black gay people as white people look at um, black straight people. You know what I mean? It's not it's it's still a systematic way of oppression. It's still white supremacy in so okay. many different ways. Well, two things with that. And, and you can chime in, too. Uh, that's important addressing that. I think that you'll see the real ramifications in 2019 for Kevin Hart, hmm. because uh, I think this was a nut check. I think this was was the response to. And you will see the, the ramifications next year because the, the Oscars is one thing. But Kevin got a whole bunch of stuff slated that was supposed to come out. We'll see if there's any change in that on how they deal with him or if all of a sudden he's got a change of, you know, no pun intended, but a change of heart come around February, March after the first quarter when you get ready to make those moves for your springtime and your summertime releases and the blockbuster season for movies. We'll see if all of a sudden he has a, a different change of tune. But an issue that we have as a people in society is that we have black members in the LBGT community who see themselves as gay first, not black. So when it comes to voting, when it comes to making moves, they're not moving on behalf of the black community. They're moving on behalf of, of the LBGT community who happen to be black. And that's a problem. It's <laughs> a big problem. I mean, that goes back to the, the fragmentation of the, uh, you know, our, our ideology within the black community. You know, um, I remember I was I was maybe my freshman year of college. Um, I actually think I was younger than that um, when I first heard that. I don't remember when it was. I think it was my maybe my sophomore year. Um, we, were, we were having a BSU discussion um, and it was kind of fragmented. I have one of my friends. He's very, you know, black nationalist. You know, he's he's a he's a he's a tough cookie. Um and the question arose from, you know, some of the black feminists, you know, a lot of, you know, we have a diverse group about whether that fem uh, feminism and, you know, focusing on other ideologies, you know, took away from, you know, black progression. Um, him being a black nationalist was straight up like, yeah, it is like F all that, you know, all that, um, that, uh, you know, the, the feminism stuff, intersectionality between that is taken away from our black progression. And it's because and at the end of the day, we're black first. Um, and my, my sentiment towards that is that we are black first. We can take care of black problems first. We need to progress as black. But once you begin to identify as black LGBTQ, black feminism, um, which either, you know, black feminism isn't, isn't bad. However, when you begin to intersect, uh, intersection that with white feminism, that takes away from our black progression because they're only using you to get what they want. And mm -hmm. we've seen that historically. Um, so when you begin to branch out for these different ideologies, you see that that takes away from our black progression and you kind of overstretch it, overstretch it, overstretch it yourselves and uh, the community as well. And it leads to no progression because we're so far out overstretched. Um, so to your comment that, you know, that they, they see, they see themselves as gay first. That's largely true. Um, with regards, they'll, they'll vote in the interest of the community because that provides the best rewards for them. And then, you know, if you look at the breakdown of it, why? Because the economic base has more power or bring them more, more rights. If you kind of break it down for, you know, why they got access rights or laws passed under Obama? Yeah. Like you said, they have they they have they have the driving force for now. They have the money. What do black people have? You know, Obama couldn't do anything for us because. Well, and and, and, and keeping that and going right along with that is it's so for some people like if you can't quite get this, wrap your brain around it. It's the same that they did with the women's liberation movement mm -hmm. when they told black women that you were a woman first as opposed to being a black right. woman. Mm -hmm. If you're sitting there trying to figure out where can I maximize, if you treat yourself like an independent corporation like Nike, if you're saying, how can I protect my bottom line? What's my best path to the come up? Well, if I align myself black first, 
where there's not a strong economic base, it's fragmented, there's not enough unity, there's not enough dollars or chips on the table to make stuff move, well, what else am I? Well, if, exactly. I'm, if I'm gay and black, well, the LBGT community's got their stuff together. So let me get on that. Mm-hmm. If, um, if I side with, with women's stuff, I'll probably inadvertently get a few things that I would have gotten had I sided with black, but I'll get it a lot faster. If I side with, you know what I mean? If you keep jumping into these subgroups and these subcultures, you can get nickels on the dollar as opposed to pennies. And so you see, we got a lot of folks who jump ship and instead of realizing the value, which I think is the theme, that a lot of us don't see the value in unifying and working with each other, that we can get the big payday as opposed to jumping on board with these other groups. And we are seen as that your second tier. The LGBT community is not worried about black people, quote unquote. They're just like, let's push this agenda that's on the table. That's all they've been worried about. And, and, and this is a proper lesson for Kevin Hart to um, marinate on, to realize that he got too comfortable. Yeah. You know, he um, has has shown and, 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 and ain't knocking him that he's kind of been the, the, the head uh, horse in the race where he's kind of outpaced a lot of other uh, comedians. And it's kind of got him a lot of backlash in the black community. But when you're making money and when you on mainstream, which he has, it doesn't really matter. But I think this is the reality and also the reality of him trying to stand as a black man and not apologize, but then turn around, actually apologize and also shows the power of what, you know, a certain community has. Right. You know what I mean? Because we're talking about tweets or we're talking about verbiage that was 10 years ago. Right. Am I, I'm correct. This, this yeah. wasn't this wasn't 2018, 2017, 2016. Yeah. Right. Oh, eight, oh, nine. This is when his money volume was not even close to what it is right now. And when you look at when white folks make that mistake by using the N word, um, let's look at young Paula Dean. Not only do you have them be ostracized for a little bit, but you have black folks stepping in and having that, that, that community with them and, and saying, Hey, come to my show. If I have one, yeah. Hey, let me stand by you when you do the press conference to apologize. Right. We will soldier to say, no, this was a good one. Made a mistake. Whereas all those people for, with Kevin Hart, with you're trying to tell me Gary Owens. No, 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 no. Well, you, where are the gay people that Kevin Hart is friends with that have put him on the payroll that have got him jobs that he's party with that he's worked with? Where are those people to speak upon his character and say that's not really Kevin Hart? That's the play of why this is a racially motivated thing. This is incorrect because he's a black person and a black person that's moving in this power base because every time someone disrespects a black person there is another negro tap dancing and speaking and giving that person credibility and then the thing happens a kind of they guilt they it, 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 it transpires for a little bit in the media they might get some 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 um, tomatoes thrown at them they might get a show pulled they might have this and that happen but a year or two later they're reinvented and it's like nothing ever happened where kevin hart is really now going to feel the effect and is basically going to be looked at as a homophobe because of this one incident mm-hmm. yeah like i said i'd be interested to see what 2019 looks like for he's going he's a fourth quarter uh, all the industry stuff is shut down for the rest of the year, for the most part. So, you know, you'll, you'll skate through the rest of this year. Everybody goes on break vacation at the end of this week until the second week of January. And so I'd like to see what, like I said, what 2019 looks for. Because, I mean, we, we got to learn that, if nothing else, all the, the people that we complain about, the folks that move into the compu- communities that we live in or all of a sudden start taking over industries that, that we founded and started working on, they did it with organization. Mm-hmm. They did it with consistency. They did it with dollars. And, and those are things that we have to do if, if we want to stay in control of those things that we build up and that we create. I mean, we got a lot of folks out there who are, are doing great things who I think we need to shed a little more light on. But there's also folks out there who do stuff that uh, needs to get the wrath. So, uh, Mr. Axios, I think there's a little somebody you want to address this Man, week. Man, you know what? When I sit there and I look at all the stuff that's been going on in our community, what's that young R&B singer? Oh, 
I, I listen. Can someone give me his Jacquez, Jacquees, <laughs> Jacquees, Jacquees? Uh, not gonna be around in two thousand nineteen. Yeah, Jacquees, oh Jacquees, <laughs> come to the table and get your paper because you are the silly Negro of the week, and because you came out. As boldly as someone who just came out of their mama womb and said, like when Cisco said he was the greatest entertainer, he was better than Usher. You just put your foot up your ass and said, I am the king of R&B. Now, we can argue for days in on who is and who's not. But for surely, my Negro, it ain't you. Okay, I'm not going to tap in to the brother that steps in the name of love, R. Kelly. He's out because of some other reasons. But when you look at all the other artists, we got Chris Brown. You know what I'm saying? Name some names, brother. Yeah, he ain't passed Usher. You, you got Usher. He ain't you passed got, Trey Songz. I mean, with Trey Songz, you're not even in a conversation with you Trey Songz. You ain't even messing with Donnell Jones. I mean, listen, it could be so <laughs> many different other individuals. Avant. The Bobby Browns, the Avants. You know oh what I'm saying? God. I mean, the list goes on and on. The fact that (laughs) I can sit at a table and I can sit there and say, I don't know, not one song. There's bad artists that I know a song from. The fact that you are from the cash money record label that has nothing to do with R&B. The fact that it's you who was hanging around with baby that already gives me some uh, questions when I'm looking at. I just don't understand why and what gave you the idea, who piped you up, who pumped you up, who put the battery in your backpack to sit there and make that statement. But I will say marketing, it was great because now folks are probably looking to see where YouTube views going all the way. Well, maybe he may have a point or why is he saying this or damn, he really is that bad when you have an RB singer saying that kind of statement, and you cannot name not one song. He's never been, he's not had one song in the top 10. I think he's only had like a few albums. I cannot call you the king of Man, R&B. I, I think he's riding away from the L, uh, LMA. If you don't uh, know who he is, his claim to fame is, is covers. That's it. Claim the famous covers. So you he, don't he, even he, have your own song that we can sit down and say, oh yeah, remember that hit? <laughs> I can name hits from Usher. I can name hits from Bobby Brown. I can name hits from uh, Chris Brown. And for those people that love him, I can name the hits from R. Kelly. Bobby Brown and it shows your age. I just want to say that. Oh, yeah, that's the king. ドーンコンペニーですねマジェネレーションにせずにせずにせずにせずにせずにせずにせずにせずにせずにせずにせずにせずにせずにせずにせずにせずにせずにせずにせずにせずにせずにせずにせずにせずにせずにせずにせずに
if he didn't say that. Nobody. Right. Nobody. And, and that's what we've been talking about. The fact is he's, he's looking at himself as a business. He's protecting his bottom line. He's out there trying to get himself out there. And I think that that's something that we need to focus on. He must be. He may, He's off coke. But, you know, he gave himself I, uh, a good I, would, I mean, you know, that's, that, that's saying, you know, all, uh, all publicity is good publicity. Oh, so, shit. you know, even if it's bad. I don't know about this situation. What's that? You know, they dragging him on Twitter, but I guarantee you, like I said, his, oh, you, his Black YouTube, Twitter his, dragged his, him his, to his, the his, his YouTube videos, his YouTube uh, views going he up. He said R&B of this time, and I'm talking about Bobby Brown, but it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> we all got to be out here. We got to be our own number one supporters. We all got to feel that we are our number one fans and that we are the king or whatever it is we're trying to do. But important, not only just giving ourselves a title that we have to put into work and establish ourselves as such. And recognizing that our own greatness does not need to take away from each other and that as we work together and build, that's how we move as a community, as a society. And we have to be in recognizing that in this capitalist society that that you got to play the rules the way that the game is set up yeah. and that we have to work together, we have to build together and that these aren't just things that we, we, we bring up in random conversation. We have to start applying them to life. So the things that we have to do something about and definitely say something about I'm Jermaine Morris here with our special guest, Khalil Ferguson. Where can folks find you online? Oh, man. Find me on Facebook, you know, Khalil Ferguson. Um, my Instagram, your favorite iota. I don't really handle uh, the Twitter or any other social media, so I'm just on those two. But, you know. You don't want to spell that for me, real quick? Yeah. My Instagram? Yeah. Your favorite iota. Your Y-O-U-R favorite. F-A-V-O-R-I-T-E. Iota. I-O-T-A. Uh, catch you on Instagram. That's largely where I'm at. Mr. Axis, where can folks find you? Oh, man. First, let me pick up this phone. Uh, Barry Axius, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Barry Axius, and Instagram. Of course, it's at Team Boy. And make sure you tap into Black Blueprints with a Z. Shouts out to the Black Blueprint staff. We got staff on the Black Blueprints there right now. Holding down the Facebook, holding down the website. Shouts out. I'm Jermaine Morris on Facebook. Every other social media platform is at CEO. We got to get in these conversations. We definitely have to have you back on. Definitely a little love with time, brother. Shout out to my little bro, man. You know, we over here making sure that young people are tapped in, tuned in. Thank you all for tapping in. Special guest Khalil Ferguson. I'm Jermaine Morris here with Barry Axius. This has been the Say Something Podcast. 73 on its way. And until next show. Yes, sir. We will holler at you later. Peace.